Greetings and welcome to The Wellness Space, a weekly podcast specifically designed to address the social, emotional, and mental health concerns of educators. I am your host, Erica Dotson-Hooper, manager of the Teaching and Learning Center for the Harris County Department of Education in Houston, Texas. Each Friday, a new episode will be available that promises to inform, inspire, and empower. Thank you for listening. Before we begin today's episode, I just wanted to take a moment to offer sincere appreciation for all of the support that we have received from teachers, principals, and superintendents across the country. We are so eager to continue to build on this community of sharing and support. So please join the conversation on social media using the hashtag HCDE Wellness Space. That's hashtag HCDE Wellness Space. You can also follow us on Twitter at underscore wellness space. Thanks for tuning in. I'm incredibly excited about today's guest, but before we get started, Let's take a moment and step over into the teacher's lounge. Close the door, get comfortable, and take a moment just to breathe. Creating equitable educational spaces for Black boys. It has been only 66 years since the landmark case Brown versus Board of Education of Topeka, Kansas, when the justices ruled unanimously that racial segregation of children in public schools was unconstitutional. And while we have made great strides in creating equitable spaces for children of color, and particularly African-American students, we still have struggled to bridge the gap fully so that every African-American student has the right to access an excellent education in America. And in order to fix a broken system, we have to first acknowledge that there is an issue. According to the U.S. Department of Education Office for Civil Rights Data Snapshot on School Discipline, Black students spend less time in the classroom due to discipline, which further hinders their access to a quality education. A closer look at the statistics will show that Black boys in particular are in crisis. They are more likely to attend schools that are under-resourced and have novice teachers. They also are more likely than their counterparts to be labeled as special education students. They are less likely to be reading on grade level than their counterparts. And they also face harsher disciplinarian practices for their misbehaviors up to criminal discipline, which makes way for the school to prison pipeline to stay jam-packed. As we sit in the middle of this global pandemic, how can we affect change? It is my hope that this conversation will begin to engender a sense of responsibility in all of us to evaluate our current practices and figure out how we can make spaces for Black boys more liberating. In the words of James Baldwin, not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced. And now, let me present to some and introduce to others our guest for today. Desmond Williams is a career teacher, principal, author, and thought leader. 
The only things he wanted to do growing up were design transformers and be a sitcom writer. After having many teachers tell him those dreams were stupid, he decided he wanted to teach because he knew children deserved better. He has spent his entire professional career serving as a special educator, classroom teacher, assistant principal, and principal. Desmond received his bachelor's degree in English literature from Howard University in Washington, D.C., and later received his master's degree in education and human development from George Washington University. He started his teaching career in DCPS as a special educator. He subsequently moved and became a special educator coordinator because of his business acumen and understanding of children with special needs. Soon afterwards, Mr. Williams worked in central office for D.C. Public Schools and the Office of Special Education. After leaving DCPS, he ventured into the world of school-based administration. He boasts many career accomplishments, but his biggest is creating pathways of success for disenfranchised communities. Desmond has spoken at multiple conferences across the country, offering his expertise and insight to engaging inner-city students. He has worked with several independent schools and school districts with his focus on educating boys of color. Desmond served six years at an all-boys school in Washington, D.C., teaching four years and serving as a principal for two more years. It had always been a goal to help other educators increase the level of engagement and invest in the boys of color. That is why he launched Nylinka School Solutions to leverage his experience and expertise to aid as many schools as possible. It is his goal to help children achieve their dreams by maximizing teacher skills and talent one solution at a time. And now let's welcome Desmond Williams to the wellness space. Greetings, Desmond, and welcome to the wellness space. Erica, thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here, and it's a pleasure to be talking with you. Absolutely. This conversation is one that I have been looking forward to for quite a while, especially in light of the double pandemic that we find ourselves in during this time. But before we get uh, down the road in our conversation, let me first ask you, how are you doing and what are you doing to care for yourself during this time? Well, let me say this, Erica. I was so looking forward to this conversation. Before we got on, I found myself putting on a shirt, <laughs> alone. And I was doing my eyebrows and I said, you know, she sent me an email three hours ago saying that it's strictly audio. So <laughs> I am overprepared, good sister. Well, that's good. That's good. But, uh, <laughs> But I am I am doing well. My family is doing well. I, I told my wife a few weeks ago, we need to get to a point where we are redefining family mm. to the degree that we're making sure that our loved ones who are outside of this home are doing well. Mm -hmm. so, um, it's, it's important to keep the crazy out and mm -hmm. keep perspective. Mm -hmm. um, because if you don't, that can get overwhelming and that can impact wellness. And yes. Health. So keeping perspective has been very important. Mm -hmm. um, and you recall, I have two young daughters mm -hmm. who 
don't understand any of this, but are impacted by it. So we are right. working feverishly to uh, up our parenting skills, to up our emotional, uh, our emotional intelligence, so that we can be, uh, so that we can support each other as adults, but so that we can be a stronger support to our children. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I can 100% relate to what you're saying. Um, I have found myself limiting um, the television news that I take in as well as some of the social media interactions I have because it can begin to feel super overwhelming. What I've had to look at is that we have this blessing of time with family that we probably wouldn't have um, if circumstances would be different. Um, I know for one, I do a whole lot of traveling and everything has come to a standstill in every way. (laughs) So we are literally in the house together. um, And I've just kind of started deciding to you know, we're going to play a board game. We're going to watch a movie together and trying to take each day as it comes and enjoy the moments that we have together. Um, And I think that when we kind of limit the outside craziness and focus on what we do have, which is our our loved ones and our health for now, um, then we're able to kind of maintain a sense of peace. Yes, ma'am. That is, I, I could not have said it any better. Yeah. So um, I know you and um, I know that you have a very intriguing story. But for those of the those of us out here who don't know you well and who are not familiar with your work or your journey, I want you to take a moment to fill them in. So let's start with what brought you to the field of education? I, I believe, Erica, um, well, th- thanks again for having me. Mm-hmm. I grew up in uh, Detroit and I had the pleasure of going to what most people would call really good schools. Mm-hmm. When uh, my grades were awful when I finished high school because uh, K through eight, I was a star student. Mm-hmm. But I had a, 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 a run-in with a teacher, my ninth grade uh, freshman English teacher I had a negative run in with her Mm -hmm. and I allowed her to redefine who I was as a student. Mm. And I finished high school with a 2.001 GPA. Mm -hmm. I I ended up going to junior college. I transferred to Howard. I refound myself. And when I got to Howard, I said, I'm either going to be a teacher or I'm going to be a lawyer. Mm-hmm. And and I decided to do uh, the, the the latter and become a teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, I started my career as a special educator, uh, working for uh, DC public schools, mm-hmm. and you know it was the opportunity to do something fruitful for for Black people, mm-hmm. the opportunity to give back and be an asset to my community that ultimately drove me into education. But underlying, underlining that Erica was this notion that I didn't want students to have the negative interaction that I had with that particular teacher. Mm, mm-hmm. 
you know, it's amazing how those interactions stay with you for a lifetime. Um, I remember the teachers that really went out of their way for me and really spent time pouring into me. And I also remember those teachers that said or did things that tore me down. Um, whether intentionally or unintentional. Um, and I think that is a piece that we all sit with as educators, that because of the position that we're in, we are tasked with pouring into children. And sometimes if we're not careful, we can pour in some negativity. Um, and it's not for us to have to try to be perfect or um, to have to put away all of our you know, trouble or baggage, but try to ensure that even when we make a mistake or cause injury or harm to a child, that we quickly rectify it and try to salvage the relationship so that it could be absolutely. a teachable moment and not a crushing moment for a child. Yeah, absolutely. And it's amazing how th this, I was 14 years old. This was freshman year of high school. It's, mm -hmm. it's interesting how there were so many amazing teachers I had before that. Mm -hmm. and there were so many amazing teachers I had in high school after that experience. But that was the experience that I allowed to redefine me mm -hmm. as a student. Mm -hmm. So our words and our actions as adults, um, particularly as educators, are strikingly critical mm -hmm. uh, to the growth and development or the misdevelopment mm -hmm. of the students that we serve. So it sounds like you got into education with very um, noble aspirations um, of making a difference. But once you became a teacher, um, what did you learn about the education system as a whole? Well, there are a few ways. There are a few ways to look at to look at that, Erica. I ultimately, I figured out that I was being used mm. and that I was not in a real position to affect the type of change that I thought I was affecting. Mm -hmm. And by that, I simply mean that in my particular classroom, some very good things could be happening. Mm -hmm. And I could say, or I could view it as we took three steps forward, mm -hmm. but across the hallway or in the hallway, you could witness five steps backwards. Mm. So the question became, what progress are we making on behalf of our students? What true progress are we making as a school mm -hmm. if uh, we continuously see um, you know, students suffering, students not learning, uh, students uh, having, you know, certain types of issues and things of that nature. But mm -hmm. yet still, all of the adults are super dedicated and super hardworking. Like, mm -hmm. what is it about a situation such as that where everyone is gung-ho and moving to move the needle for students, but yet and still um, students are not performing up to the quote-unquote standards mm -hmm. that have been set for them. So I... You know, I don't know if I'm getting ahead of myself, but I, I took a step back and really started examining what the profession was and what it meant mm -hmm. and how I thought I wanted to fit into it as opposed to 
letting my principals, my boss, other educators, or even the books that I had read mm-hmm. set a standard for what kind of professional I would be in these spaces. Mm-hmm. I find that a lot of times what what gets a teacher out of the classroom is the frustration that they feel like the lowest person on the totem pole. Um, like their opinions matter the least and they're able to affect change up to a point, but many of them have a much larger vision and want to do a lot more. So I know from there you ended up going into leadership um, as a principal. So with those frustrations and with that new view of, of the system, how did that govern the way you moved as a principal? So if I can back us up for a second, mm-hmm. Erica, I didn't necessarily feel that way. I felt listened to mm-hmm. even as a quote unquote black male educator in a school with over 63 teachers, I would say, mm-hmm. and only uh, several black men as a PE teacher and custodian, but only two black men as classroom teachers. Mm-hmm. I didn't feel that I wasn't listened to. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, I felt like I was being listened to too much. Mm. And mm. and after two years as, as being part of uh, the new teacher project and the DC Teaching Fellows, I left DC Public Schools and went to a school for children with special needs mm-hmm. and taught in a self-contained uh, environment, environment with students who were mostly ED. Mm-hmm. And that was a smaller environment and I was listened to even even more. I didn't feel disempowered. Mm-hmm. What I what I came to find out is I didn't really understand what I was saying. Mm-hmm. I didn't understand what I was talking about. And the things that I was talking about, I was parroting things I had heard and I had not examined them for myself, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. So I was a, for lack of a better word, a puppet. Mm. And uh, it struck me one day and I said, well, wait a minute. Where did all of this, you know, it was literally uh, Neo going down the rabbit hole that was the Matrix coming into the real world, if Mm. you will. Mm -hmm. Um, But in terms of how it impacted me as a principal, it, it, it did impact me because I became principal at a very young age and I learned to be very resolute in the things that I was saying mm-hmm. and the things that I believed in to mm-hmm. the degree that uh, beyond working with adults who cared and loved children, I wanted to reshape my philosophy and reshape my philosophy with adults mm-hmm. who were interested in that philosophy. So that was part of what I was looking for in, in staff that I was hiring mm-hmm. and in terms of professional development um, for, for my teachers and for myself was how can we uh, work with a philosophy that we believe in mm-hmm. and that we completely understand to the degree that is going to lead to academic achievement for our students. Mm-hmm. Thank you for clarifying that. But can can you unpack that a bit and share with us how your 
philosophy change then? Um, I, I find it interesting when you say that you, you began to feel like a, a puppet um, because you could not um, surmise where you got the terminology or the, the, the verbiage that you was using or kind of, I guess, the whys of why you were saying what you were saying. So can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. It, it was a philosophy of, and, and this is coming from uh, not going to undergrad to be a teacher, mm-hmm. having went to grad school, and over the course of two years being given, this is what education is, mm-hmm. particularly, particularly this is what education is in the hood, and this is what special education is, mm-hmm. and particularly this is what special education should look like in the hood. Mm. And I, it just dawned on me that the work that I was doing and the beliefs that I held were hurting black children. Mm. And I remember my second year of teaching Erica, I was getting, we were getting prepared for an IEP meeting. It was an eligibility meeting for a student. Mm-hmm. And we were at the table and we had about, you know, we were going over the information for the meeting and we were waiting for the parent to come. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know, we're, we're very smart people sitting at this table. We're looking at all of this information, but we're making opinions. Mm-hmm. We're giving opinions about what we think should happen with this child. Does anyone have a problem with that? Mm-hmm. And I remember the the school counselor who was, the special education coordinator literally kicking my shin <laughs> under the table saying, boy, we don't have those conversations here. And it, it just led me to think more deeply about the opinions that we give and how it impacts families, mm. impacts students. And I started gradually going through this process of redefining what, I wanted to be as an educator and more specifically what do what do these decisions mean for African American students mm-hmm. and how are those decisions different in other spaces for other races of children mm. and I came to the conclusion that by and large these policies and these practices were not enacted with African American students in mind mm-hmm. and one of the things that I have learned is even if it's not purposeful, when disenfranchised or vulnerable groups are left out of the decision-making, mm-hmm. they can be hurt even though it was not intentional. Mm-hmm. And that was my philosophy in terms of what was happening in special education. But as I grew and I learned more, I came to the startling observation that that was African-Americans in education across this nation, which Mm. is why our achievement data and for a long time, long time, our high school graduation data looked the way it looked. Mm -hmm. I hope I was clarifying there. Absolutely, you did. Um, Now, I know your work largely centers around creating more equitable spaces for Black boys in particular. Um, How do you do this? What does the work look like? It it literally, I'm so glad you 
ask that question, Erica. It looks like uh, it looks like spaces with adults who care, right? Asa Hilliard said, black children are no different than any other group of children. They have to be educated with love. Mm -hmm. So the first thing you want is people who are going to be working with them, who love them. Mm -hmm. But the other thing is they are in need of the mirrors and the windows that reflect who they are in their culture. Mm -hmm. And I sincerely believe, and I talk about this in the book, there may not particularly be a black male learning style, mm -hmm. but as so many black scholars and psychologists and researchers have said, when you put black culture in the center of the learning mm -hmm. and at the center of communication and at the center of the social emotional learning and the behavior modification and those kind of things, mm -hmm. students will flourish. Mm. I sincerely believe that educating any group of children, any group of people is about helping them solve problems in their community. Mm -hmm. So uh, sh the short answer, which is actually really complicated, but the short answer to educating black children is to give them an education that helps them solve problems in their community. Mm. The bigger their community may be, right? Because we could be talking about a strand of neighborhoods versus a city versus a state versus a country versus a hemisphere the larger that community is, the more complex the education has to be. But when you look at what happens in this country for our white counterparts, and when you look at what happens across the globe, the education of those groups is designed to help them solve the immediate problems of their community and of their society. Mm -hmm. So what do you think has been the consequence of the current educational structure on black boys? It, it leads to disenfranchisement. Mm -hmm. And that disenfranchisement plays out in a multitude of ways. It plays out essentially in African-Americans. Well, let me back up for a second. We are in school with um, a teaching force that is 80% white female. Mm -hmm. We are in schools that do not have curriculums that reflect who we are. Mm -hmm. We learn about the heroes of Western culture. We learn about the heroes of American and European culture, but we do not learn about uh, African history. And we certainly do not learn about African-American history over that 10 months. So ultimately what happens for black boys is we start asking questions around where do I fit into this picture? Mm -hmm. And the answer to that is I don't. Mm. So the beginning of our political and our economic disenfranchisement and even our religious and spiritual disenfranchisement is a result of what happens and the programming that is given to us in schools. That is my belief in terms of what I have seen mm -hmm. and to a large degree it um, that is uh, perpetuated in all facets whether you have uh, black males in public schools there's a certain amount of disenfranchisement that happens 
uh, with middle-class black boys who are in the suburbs or who are even in private schools to the degree that going back to what Carter G. Woodson said, you have groups of what he would call bourgeoisie Negroes, right? Mm -hmm. If I can say that, who mm -hmm. are unfit to help black people solve the problems in their community because mm -hmm. they were not taught that the problems in their community are something that they should be concerned with. They've mm. been taught to manage the affairs of white America and to manage the affairs of the larger issues in society. Mm. If I can say that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You can. So how can you, um, through your work, through your words, through your, through your books, empower principals and teachers to create more equitable environments for boys. There, there are, are principals who want to do this right, um, but don't have any idea where to start in their campus. So like, what should it look like? What should it feel like? What should it sound like? Great question. The first thing I say to principals is, is this a place where boys feel safe? Mm -hmm. and, and really this is children in general. Mm -hmm. Is this a place where black boys feel safe? Mm -hmm. where black boys feel hurt mm -hmm. and where they feel like they have a stake in what's happening. When you talk to black boys from fourth grade on up, as early as they can articulate it, they will say, we don't feel listened to. Mm -hmm. We feel like we are being taught that. So mm -hmm. that's one. B, I start with this notion of uh, culture and can we ground our the mores and the folkways of African-American people in what we do in our schools? Mm -hmm. I think it's very important um, as well to be thinking about restorative justice and how are we managing the behaviors that we do not want to see in our building? Are we teaching when we discipline or are we strictly just disciplining our students. I think the other thing that's really important, going back to this notion of helping groups of people solve problems, is what are we saying education is for? Mm -hmm. are, we, are we grooming, and, and this is not a gender issue, are we grooming Black children to want to solve the problems in our own communities? Mm -hmm. Right. At this point, Erica, we have approximately 22% of African-Americans over the age of 24 have a college degree. Hmm. And 1996, that was approximately uh, 12%, right? So we've had a, a mushroom effect of African-Americans who now have four-year degrees. Mm -hmm. but we still can't solve problems like crime in Chicago and in Detroit. Um, we're still dealing with police, police brutality. Mm -hmm. We're still with food insecurity, food deserts. Um, one of the things I, I mentioned in the book that uh, some people took umbrage with was this notion of quote unquote, black entrepreneurship. And one of the things that I argue is that we are in service industries where we are consulting and we are doing taxes and these service related industries, but we are not in, uh, the mode of producing. So I think the schooling for our children has to completely 
be revolutionized so we can think about uh, creating more quote unquote entrepreneurship so that we can employ uh, more and more of our own. Mm-hmm. Uh, so to, to narrow that down, because that was kind of a lot, is the education moving Black people to solving their own problems? Mm-hmm. And, and, and I'll, I'll say this and then I'll stop because I feel like I'm rambling on. No. <laughs> but we talk about building these equitable spaces, but it's not giving Black children access to the middle class. Mm. That That's a great thing, right? Mm-hmm. I, I've worked in um, lots of schools and I have um, been in lots of schools and this notion of you have to go to college. I think that's really great. But at the same time, when you matriculate and you finish college, are you willing to work on the problems that are needed in the immediate community that you came from? Mm. Um, so th- those are some things that I tell principals. Um, but I also think it's important in terms of that belonging that Black boys need, that you have clubs and after-school programming that is absolutely um, something that they want to be a part of. And I mm-hmm. had a conversation with the principal and he's concerned about in this digital space, Erica, um, these ma- these magnificent clubs that he had mm-hmm. um, that were in the after-school program. And I said, you know, part of the problem with after-school programming is that it's more fun than what happens during the school day. Mm-hmm. And you need yeah. to move some of the robotics clubs and the Rubik's Cube club and, you know, having students have cardboard challenges and those kind of things. You need to move that into your school day. Mm-hmm. And he actually did some of those things. The problem was we were under a pandemic, as you said, and those things went by the wayside. And what he saw was that in, in, in April and May and June, some of the engagement for those black and brown boys kind of uh, started to uh, deteriorate. So, mm. you know, I, I think those clubs and giving those groups a sense of belonging is, is super important. But mm-hmm. it, it starts with that notion of love. Mm-hmm. I, I would be uh, remiss if I also didn't mention Erica in terms of what principals can do in terms of creating equitable spaces for for black males we have to be mindful of various and multiple learning modalities mm-hmm. and ensuring that we're breaking the instructional inequity that leads teachers to keep students in this mode of chalk talk and sit and get mm-hmm. we have to be more creative with our the products that we're asking students to produce mm-hmm. and we have to be more creative as teach as teachers with the delivery of the content mm-hmm. our boys and, and our girls too because the research says when teachers are engaging students and students are more active physically and there's more conversation and debate that those things are super helpful for girls though girls are much more resilient when mm-hmm. they are in a lecture style classroom or engaging in chalk 
chalk and talk and sit and get kind of conversations. But those, that instructional inequity is what I call it. Those things have to be broken and principals have to train their teachers to be quiet, Mm -hmm. to front load the information and then let students embrace the cognitive load. And that's a big part of what I'm working with schools on in terms of we just have to be quiet Mm -hmm. and we can have students produce something more besides a worksheet, an essay, and these kind of things that just bore many students, but specifically boys to death. Mm -hmm. And those things, they have their place but they don't have to be the end all to be all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we have this unique opportunity to reimagine and redesign schools um, as we continue to educate students virtually during this pandemic. If you started a school, if you were to have your own school and you were the principal, based on all that you know in your research, what would that virtual school look like? What would a virtual school look like? Mm-hmm. Man, it would um, first and foremost, it would be it would be grounded in love. Mm-hmm. There would be multiple opportunities for for students to engage socially with one another. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also think that it's it's very important that we not forget the importance of human interaction. Um, going back to that notion of uh, engagement. Mm-hmm. But I also think it's important what I've learned from many teachers and principals over these last four months is that students uh, are not helping students. Mm. We're not using our 12th graders to work with ninth graders. We're not using our eighth graders to work with our seventh and sixth graders. Everything mm. is happening in silos. Mm -hmm. We're not actually at the point where we're using Jason who sits next to Brian. We're not using those two to help each other. Mm -hmm. It's very teacher centered Mm -hmm. with students being passive. So a lot of the elements that I talked about in terms of, uh, you know, putting black culture at the root of what happens for students. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's a lot of those things, but it's also really thinking about what engagement can be in these virtual spaces. And I'm doing a lot of work talking to teachers in that K through two space, because what we found is that the reading instruction is not high quality. Mm -hmm. Writing is non-existent (laughs) to, Mm -hmm. to put it, to put it blunt. So I'm doing a lot of, uh, work. We're actually creating a webinar to give teachers in that pre-K three and pre-K four up through third grade to give them tools to help them better engage students for the time that we have them because mm-hmm. we know they don't have the wherewithal and the bandwidth to be in front of a computer for seven hours. But if you mm-hmm. have them for an hour and a half. How can we leverage that to ensure that the literacy isn't compromised? Mm-hmm. The, the other thing that I would say is all hands on deck in terms of our, what we call specials classes. 
giving mm-hmm. students the opportunity to engage in more clubs and those special classes, I think is really important to the degree that this is an opportunity for kids to come out of school with more skill. Mm-hmm. We, we can completely, in a virtual space, and even in brick and mortar, completely revolutionize and democratize what we have students do. I, mm-hmm. I know a, um, a, he's a friend of mine, I would call him, but he was, he's a DJ. He's actually mm-hmm. a computer software engineer, but his passion is DJing and a particular school here in DC asked him to, you know, move his DJing class into the school day. And when he was doing it in the aftercare component, he had about 12 students, but he Mm -hmm. had um, about 40 kids um, demoing this software that he was able to give to these students. And he was teaching them just some kind of basic fundamental things um, Mm -hmm. given that time. But I think there is a, this is an opportunity to revolutionize things Mm-hmm. And revolutionize the content so that it's more relevant, it's more engaging, where we're still able to get in our reading and our writing and our arithmetic and our social studies and our sciences. I also think it's an opportunity for us to rethink um, what happens with project-based learning. Mm-hmm. If we could rethink and find a way to get more um, lab-ready opportunities for students that mm-hmm. could be user-friendly for parents, I would I would love for schools to rethink about what science looks like from K all the way up through 12 mm-hmm. um, in particular. So. Yeah, so, so tell us about The Burning House. Uh, give us a little insight about your book and what led you to go ahead and put your thoughts in print. I'm so glad you asked that question. The book came out in uh, at the end of February, early March of this year, but it is at, at its heart, Erica, the burning house, educating black boys in modern America is it's chronicling some of my journey mm-hmm. in terms of the awakening that I went through, but mm-hmm. I liken myself to Martin Luther King. There's an interview that Dr. King gave. It's it's on YouTube. It's a May 8th, 1967 interview with NBC News. And he was reflecting on the gains of the civil rights struggle. Mm-hmm. And one of the things he said is he was quoting James Baldwin. He said, I feel like we've integrated into a burning house. Mm-hmm. He also said that in reflecting upon the civil rights movement, he felt a lot of the gains that were given to the black community were bargain gains and that mm-hmm. they did not cost America anything. Mm. That's how I felt throughout my career up until the point where I heard Dr. King say that this notion of there were three steps forward, but there were five steps back mm-hmm. and that the progress we were making was not solving the big societal issues for black people which is in fact racism. Mm -hmm. So when I said that, when I heard him say that in in the interview, 
I immediately scratched out the title of the book. The initial title of the book was supposed to be called The Work. I said, mm -hmm. that's the title of the book because what's happening in school is what's happening in society. Society is the burning house. Mm -hmm. it's, the school is just a microcosm for that. And I talk very explicitly to teachers about why in fact that house is on fire because we are complicit without necessarily understanding how the machinations of that system negatively impact black children, specifically black boys. And I talk about being complicit myself mm -hmm. to disarm the reader so that they will say, you know what, maybe that is true. And what can I do to be more equitable in my practices, but also getting teachers to say, well, I am already equitable in my practices. What else do I need to be doing to make an impact outside of my classroom? Or maybe if I'm a principal, to be more equitable outside of my school building. Mm -hmm. so that's, the, that's the book in a nutshell. There was a reference made to the difference between great teachers and firefighters that I absolutely love. Can you talk to us a little about that? Yeah, the, the idea of a great teacher is a great practitioner who understands pedagogy and loves children and does everything in their absolute power to make sure that they're doing well socially and academically. But a firefighter, Erica, is a great teacher, but mm -hmm. also a person who is advocating for changes for Black children outside of what it means to be a, a, an, a great educator. So they are, they are teachers who are committed to education. They're lifelong teachers. They're committed to equity. They're committed to their continued uh, learning and progress, but they are also fighting for the policy changes that happen, out, that happen outside of schools mm -hmm. that greatly impact the things that happen within school buildings. Mm -hmm. So it's this notion of political advocacy mm -hmm. that sets them apart. And, and one of the things that I argue is that it takes a lot of energy and art and heart and art and effort to be a great teacher. Mm -hmm. But we are at a point where being a great teacher is not enough mm. because there, there's, there have not been many schools that I've been in where there's just an oversaturation of bad teachers. Mm -hmm. Most of the teachers I meet are really well-skilled and they really care about the students they serve. Mm -hmm. So we must be in need of something else in order to move, in order to dismantle this system that's so oppressive and that is so dysfunctional for black and brown children. Mm. I think your book will be an excellent piece for educators and, and principals to to use to kind of guide the work. I know that you're working on a workbook um, to partner with the book. Is that available? And how could uh, principals and teachers go about getting that? So what had happened was, <laughs> if I could say that, the companion piece I, I, I got feedback from readers because we're at the point where people are 
purchased the book and they finished reading it. And some have asked me, so wait a minute, am I a firefighter, mm -hmm. Desmond? Where do I belong in this conversation? Mm -hmm. So I, I felt the need to flesh out and define in clear terms what it means to be a firefighter. Mm -hmm. I'm working on that now. It is 80% done. And awesome. it's, it's going to go to an editor by the 15th. Those who purchase the book from my website, mm -hmm. they will get a free copy of it. Mm. It's, it's not my goal to mass produce it. Mm -hmm. uh, but those who purchased the book so far, uh, I have their emails and I have their physical addresses. They, they will get a free copy of it. And I, I think the goal is to produce it in a very limited quality. I mean, sorry, in a very lim limited uh, quantity. Mm -hmm. But the, the design of it is to serve as a workbook, a companion piece to give uh, teachers the opportunity to reflect and do some journaling on where they are in their journey from teacher to good teacher to great teacher to hopefully firefighter. So the 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 drop date as we say is scheduled for august the 5th okay yes ma'am well desmond we want to just thank you so much for stopping in and sharing your wisdom and your ideology with us to get us to stretch our thinking and begin to figure out how we could best serve students with particular emphasis on restructuring our spaces to properly educate black boys and children. Um, if principals or teachers would like to reach out to you, how can they go about contacting you? Sure. I can be reached on social media, uh, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Mylinka. That's uh, N-Y-L-I-N-K-A. You can also email me. My email address is dwilliams as in Desmond Williams, at mylinka.org. Mylinka, again, is N-Y-L-I-N-K-A. That's .org. You can also visit my website, which gives an overview of the work that I do um, in supporting schools and uh, helping vulnerable groups. The website is www.mylinka.org. And that's also where you can purchase a copy of the book, The Burning House, Educating Black Boys in Modern America. Awesome. Any final thoughts or advice before we let you go today? You know, I, th I think my, my final piece of advice as we talk about this notion of, of wellness is we have to take care of ourselves. Mm -hmm. So that we can take care of others mm -hmm. and I think the best way to do that is to keep the proper perspective mm -hmm. and in doing so that makes it so much easier and takes the pressure off of us I think mm -hmm. people feel a lot of pressure right now I mm -hmm. think people are feeling pressure Erica to be a part of the change. I mm -hmm. think people feel pressure to understand the change. And I also think people feel a certain amount of pressure to know everything that's happening. Mm -hmm. and, and I don't know how necessary I believe that is to the degree, to the degree that it may be 
uh, hurting or harming us on an individual level. So I, I think it's important um, because we are talking under the auspice of, of wellness that we that we continuously take care of ourselves. It's the notion of on an airplane, if the, the cabin pressure drops, first thing you have to do is put your mask on. Mm-hmm. Um, and no pun intended, but please wear your mask. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but, but, but first things first, I believe we have to take care of ourselves so that we can be an asset to the people who are closest to us. The other thing I would say is, I think it's very important that for people who are engaged in this fight, mm-hmm. going back to this notion of history and perspective, that we do not uh, get caught up in the symbols of change. Mm. Because as Dr. King said, we thought these things were to our benefit, but they were really only symbolic changes. So it, it's great that outside of the White House, there's a Black Lives mural uh the black lives matter mural that's great and it's great that some of these symbols of racism are coming down and we've seen the the name changes of schools and that you know there's talk here in dc i don't know if you guys heard it down in texas that the red the washington redskins may be even changing their names i think all of those things are great but we we have been here before mm-hmm. and and real change specifically as it relates to ending racism and white supremacy is restoring African-American people to where we were before enslavement. Mm-hmm. And that's much deeper than a mural or defunding police and, and some of the things that we see happening. So we have to push the envelope even more, but in doing so, we have to take care of ourselves. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much, Desmond. And we look forward to the release in August. Awesome. I thank you again for having me. I would be super remiss if I didn't thank you for all of the hard work that you have done pushing the envelope forward, not even in in Houston, but in the entire state of Texas. So thank you for all of your hard work. And I'm uh, glad to see you thriving Uh, under this new venture. Thank you. We are so grateful that you tuned in to today's episode, and we hope that in some small way you were encouraged and enlightened, as well as being equipped with some new skills to add to your self-care toolkit. But let's not allow the conversation to end here. Let's continue in community together all week on Twitter. We ask that you follow us at HCDE underscore TLC. That's the Teaching and Learning Center for the Harris County Department of Education. There you will find information about upcoming workshops, conferences, and other PD events. And also follow me at Erica DH. That's at Erica E double R I C A D H. And don't forget to use the hashtag HCDE wellness space. Until next time, be well.